Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Divine Redemption in Our Human Families, Lessons from Jacob and Esau. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 10th, 2011. My maternal grandmother was an identical twin, and my two nieces are fraternal twins. So I gravitated this week toward the Genesis 25 reading about the most famous twins in the Bible, Jacob and Esau. When I read the so-called Holy Bible, I don't normally expect stories about infertility, obstetrics, genealogy, legal wills, and family dysfunction. The story of Jacob and Esau feels like walking into a county courthouse and sifting through musty boxes of birth certificates, death notices, marriage licenses, records of lawsuits, medical histories of family pathology, and resentful letters never meant to be read by others. But therein lies the story of our own family redemption today. Divine grace meets us in our own flawed family histories. <clears throat> Sarah and her daughter-in-law, Rebecca, both suffered from infertility. According to the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, about 10% of the reproductive age population in the United States suffers infertility, affecting men and women equally. Multiple births, on the other hand, are even more rare Twins occur in roughly 3% of live births, and triplets, like our neighbors across the street from us, occur in about 1.8 per 1,000 live births. And so these statistical improbabilities in biology are components of the salvation narrative. Whether ancient or modern, infertility is a tragedy for those who experience it. You don't expect good things to materialize out of infertility. Infertility feels like the absence of divine activity rather than its presence. Some people even construe infertility as divine punishment. But the story for this week reminds us that such conclusions could be premature. Human loss and powerlessness are likewise components of redemption. And while multiple births bring special blessings, they pose unique challenges. Can you ever treat identical twins equally? Should you even try? How can such genetically similar people be so different? Statistically speaking, then, both infertility and multiple births are uncommon. But that's how God acted in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah, with the birth of the fraternal twins, Jacob and Esau. <clears throat> the Genesis story about Abraham's extended family encompasses about 50 different people. Almost all of those who are mentioned are male, for females in that time and place didn't count, literally or figuratively. So right there we've lost half of the story to the mists of history. If you drew a family radius that reached to your 50 closest relatives, who and what would that encompass? 
Our own stories would include all that we read about here. It's not all pretty, and hardly the stuff of a Hallmark greeting card, but it's definitely the story of God's saving activity. Abraham fathered at least eight sons by three different women. We know of Ishmael and his mother, the Egyptian slave Hagar. Then there's Isaac, who was born to Sarah. And this week, we read that after Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah, by whom he fathered six more sons. But Keturah's family stories screech to an abrupt halt. For some unknown reason, the Book of Records, as it is called in Genesis 5.1, names all six of Keturah's sons, but then identifies the offspring of just two of those six. Then it mentions just how one of those two grandsons gave birth to three clans. This spotty record feels random and incomplete, glaring with significant gaps. Surely there were some daughters born who remain lost to history? Nor does the record keeper comment on any of its significance, if it had any significance. The stories of Keturah's sons with Abraham sputter out in a genealogical dead end. But we do learn one little dirty detail. Upon his death, we read in Genesis 25, verse 5, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. While he was living, he patronized the sons of his concubines with a few trinkets, after which the text says he sent them away from his son Isaac. Well, so much for maintaining warm family relations. Abraham actively disinherited seven of his eight sons and their families and then banished them. It's hard to imagine a better recipe for family resentment. Similarly, we learn precious little about Ishmael, the one son born to Abraham by Hagar. Ishmael fathered 12 sons and perhaps some unmentioned daughters, and the chronicler lists each and every one of their 12 names. He adds that Ishmael died and then makes the ominous observation that, quote, they lived in hostility toward all their brothers. Given how Abraham disenfranchised most of his offspring when he disposed of his massive wealth, and how Sarah and Hagar bickered jealously from the beginning, I suppose sibling rivalry is what you would expect, along with effectively erasing you from the written record of family history. That brings us to the infertile couple Isaac and Rebekah and the birth of their famous twins Jacob and Esau. During Rebekah's pregnancy, we read that the twins jostled each other within her like some harbinger of further family feuding. In a reversal of that culture's conventional wisdom, God announced that the older boy would serve the younger. From the birth, the fraternal twins were different. Esau was born rough and ready, a hairy boy who grew up to be a rugged hunter who loved the open country. Jacob, on the other hand, we read, was a quiet man staying among the tents. 
And in 25 verse 29, we find him cooking in the kitchen with the women. Aggravating these differences, the parents played favorites. Isaac favored Esau, and Rebekah doted upon Jacob. Jacob eventually conned his brother Esau of the family birthright, which under normal Semitic conditions gave the bearer a double share of the family inheritance. Later, Rebekah lied to her husband Isaac so that she and Jacob could swindle the family blessing. Jacob learned his lessons well. For a few chapters later, he too played favorites, loving Rachel more than Leah. And now baptized this family pathology with a dose of religion. We read in Genesis 26, verse 3 and verse 12, God blessed Isaac which is to say that God carried out his plans for human redemption through one of the twin boys, but not the other. Jacob, not Esau, became the father of the nation Israel. And through four women, the sisters Rachel and Leah and their slaves Billah and Zilpah, Jacob also fathered 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, from whom would come the Christ. In brother Esau, Esau became the titular head of rival Edom. Fratricide would characterize their later family history. There's mystery and an odd sort of encouragement in this Semitic family history that's central to the story of salvation. We don't know why God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, or one of Keturah's six boys or Jacob instead of Esau. It's not clear why we learn so tantalizingly little about Keturah's six boys or Ishmael's twelve sons. No explanation is offered. The choice feels random and arbitrary, and maybe it was. In, In that all of these undeserving characters are so deeply flawed, so entirely human and like us, God's choice was clearly not based on merit. None of the players in this story come off well. They give the lie to so-called biblical family values. None of them offered better metal for the history of salvation. Far from it. And therein, we today can take encouragement. These people and their families look feel, sound, and act suspiciously like our own families. And yet God worked mightily through the statistical improbabilities and practical challenges of infertility, multiple births, and deviant behavior. In his gracious hands, the incidental, the accidental, and the ordinary become the material of redemptive history, both in ancient Israel and in our own families today. And now for further reflection. Why do you think some Christians suggest that our families should be perfect or free of problems? How has God worked in and through your own family's brokenness? For a remarkable story of divine redemption within deep family dysfunction, see the powerful memoir by Mary Carr, 
the title is LIT, L-I-T. And finally, consider how the genealogy of Jesus affirms God's solidarity with fallen human families. On page one of his gospel, Matthew lists 42 men in Jesus' genealogy, and then he lists four women with unsavory pasts. Tamar was widowed twice, then became a victim of incest when her father-in-law abused her as a prostitute, Genesis 38. Rahab was a foreigner and a whore who protected the Hebrew spies by lying. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow. And then Bathsheba was the object of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up. This is the family tree of Jesus our Lord. For books this week, I review a title called The Age of Deception, Nuclear Diplomacy in Treacherous Times. The author is Mohammed El Baradai, New York Metropolitan Books, 2011, 340 pages. Blessed are the peacemakers. From 1997 to 2009, Mohammed El Baradai served as the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, founded in 1957, and in that capacity as the overseer of the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons that was founded in 1970 and signed by 198 countries. Despite working at the vortex of such highly politicized issues, El Baradai and the IAEA were awarded the 2005 Nobel Peace Prize for their work. El Baradai takes readers behind the scenes to his meetings with world leaders through effective storytelling. Separate chapters detail his own conclusions about nuclear security in Iraq, North Korea, Iran, and Libya. That America would invade Iraq despite the accurate conclusions of the IAEA was a gross distortion of everything the IAEA stood for. And in fact, Vice President Cheney had told Baradai personally that although the U.S. was ready to work with the United Nations inspectors, they were also ready to discredit those inspections in order to disarm Iraq. And as for Libya, the 2003 revelation that they were developing weapons of mass destruction was shocking news to El Baradai. El Baradai observes three profound changes in the nuclear status quo. First, there's the WMD development in rogue states like North Korea and Libya. Whereas knowledge acquisition is easier than ever, and states are catching up on industrial capacity, national intentions remain both complex and opaque. Second, after 2011, it became obvious that not just rogue states, but extremist non-straight actors seek WMDs. This, says Baradai, is no mere fairy tale. And finally, there's the active black market for nuclear weapons and equipment, what Alberti calls the nuclear Walmart that involves 30 nations and mysterious figures like A.Q. Khan. 
In fact, the IAEA has identified more than 1,300 cases of black market trafficking in nuclear and radioactive materials. There are honest differences among experts about these complex nuclear matters. There are typically sharp internal disagreements within government administrations. Technology, policy, legality, the media, and strong personalities all come into play. For security in the Middle East, the biggest elephant in the room is Israel's nuclear arsenal, which endures thanks to a double standard that ensures an asymmetrical nuclear imbalance in the region. The insistence of the United States on maintaining an overwhelming nuclear arsenal while denying nuclear development by other nations is not only a gross hypocrisy, says Albertine, it also provokes paranoia and humiliation. Confrontation, isolation, and sanctions will guarantee rather than prohibit proliferation, for they stir pride and resentment. Mutual dialogue, honest compliance, Genuine transparency and respect for the rule of law are in everyone's best interest. Says Baradine, we must abandon the unworkable notion that is, that is morally reprehensible for some countries to pursue weapons of mass destruction, yet morally acceptable for others to rely upon them for security. Mohammed El Baradai the Age of Deception. For film this week, I review 127 hours from the year 2010. This film earned six Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Best Actor. But the improbable story of Aaron Ralston is so well known that I found it hard to make a movie about him. Before you see the film, you know what happened. You also know the outcome. And so how do you dramatize being stuck by a rock? In April of 2003, Ralston was canyoneering in Utah when he was trapped by a massive boulder that pinned him against the sheer walls. He hadn't told anyone where he was going that weekend. Thinking he would certainly die, he videotaped his thoughts to his family. But then, after five days, he amputated his arm with a small, dull, multi-purpose knife, climbed out of the crevice, rappelled down a cliff, and walked until he was discovered by a Dutch family. He was taken to a hospital about six hours after his escape. <clears throat> James Franco lends the film star power by playing Ralston, but I had a hard time separating the facts of a phenomenal story from cinematic melodrama. For Ralston's autobiography, see his book by the title Between a Rock and a Hard Place. The title of the movie, 127 Hours. <clears throat> And finally, for poetry this week, and in keeping with our theme of God's redemption in our human families, we've posted a poem by Theodore Rotka, who lived from 1908 to 1963. The title of the poem is called My Papa's Waltz. It's a powerful and poignant combination 
of admiration, love, and fear of one's parents. My Papa's Waltz by Theodore Rotka. The whiskey on your breath could make a small boy dizzy, but I hung on like death. Such waltzing was not easy. We romped until the pans slid from the kitchen shelf. My mother's countenance could not unfrown itself. The hand that held my wrist was battered on one knuckle. At every step you missed, my right ear scraped a buckle. You beat time on my head with a palm caked hard by dirt, then waltzed me off to bed, still clinging to your shirt. Thank you for joining us with journeyatjesus.net for Sunday, July 10th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.